Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Utopia Podcast, formerly known as Nonprofit U. Our podcast is an extension of our community, and we provide a forum where nonprofit stakeholders can share lessons learned and discuss the latest developments in the industry. My name is Valerie Leonard. I'm your host and the founder of Nonprofit Utopia, the ideal community for emerging nonprofit leaders. I work with nonprofit organizations to help them make a stronger impact to their clients and communities. And you can find out more about us on nonprofitutopia.com, Facebook, and Twitter. I encourage you to follow us and to comment early and often using the hashtags nonprofitutopia and justiceinformed. You can also leave questions on blogtalkradio.com forward slash nonprofitutopia. The chat room is open, and you can post comments and questions right now. In order to use the chat room, you must open a listener-only account. You'll find a link to open the account on the page for this episode right underneath the chat box. And you can also email me questions at ValerieFLeonard at nonprofitutopia.com. But I will say if you email me questions, I may not be able to respond to them immediately while we're on the air because I'll be so engrossed in the wonderful conversation that we'll be having. So we'll be taking questions by phone and from our chat room at about the 30-minute mark or so. And the call-in number, again, is 347-884-8121. The episode is Justice Informed, Engaging Community Through DEI, Philanthropy, and Corporate Responsibility. And when I say DEI, I'm talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion for those who may not be familiar with the jargon. We'll be talking about the intersection of diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI, as well as community engagement, philanthropy, and corporate responsibility. We'll also examine the current environment and discuss strategies organizations can use to strategically align people, processes, and culture in order to capitalize on changes in a globalized economy, and that includes its workforce and production system. You can start posting in the chat room again, and if you want to participate in the live chat once more, you have to open an account, and the link is found on the episode page right beneath the box, and the call-in number is 347-884-8121, and we really, really would love to have nonprofit and community development professionals call in and share some of your stories and strategies. And if you're in the activist community, we would really love to hear some of this nonprofit discussion tempered by your experiences. Today's guest is Xavier Ramey. He's the CEO and lead strategist of Justice Informed LLC. Justice Informed is a social impact consultant firm based in Chicago. Xavier is an award-winning social strategist He's a noted public speaker and conflict mediator. His leadership of Justice Informed allows him to combine his background in economics as well as his extensive background in management and social impact. And most importantly, he gets a chance to combine those experiences with his direct action campaigning with the Black Lives Matter movement. Xavier has leveraged his experience and network to help clients develop and implement catalyzed strategies for inclusion, philanthropy, CSR, and community engagement. Xavier is a native Chicagoan, and he is a recognizable voice on the topics of community and economic development, policing and policy violence. I'm sorry, policing and policing violence and some of the policy changes, as well as connecting the Christian faith to our lived experience. Xavier served as the lead of the social innovation and philanthropy strategy in the University of Chicago's Office of Civic Engagement, where he managed multi-million dollar philanthropic portfolios to stimulate employment through development in Chicago's North Lawndale community and Xavier is a founding member of the Let Us Breathe Collective, which is an artist-activist organization committed to addressing state violence against people of color. He is a board member of Young Chicago Authors and the newly opened Chicago Center for Arts and Technology. 
Xavier has recently delivered a TED Talk and addressed the Rotary International Convention. And you can find links to those conversations, I believe, on the Justice Informed website. And if not so, then I know you can Google them and find the links as I did myself. Okay, so Xavier, I know that was an exhaustive but yet <laughs> abbreviated. I mean, it, it, <laughs> as, as long as that introduction felt, you know, I know you, and I know that's the short version. You've done, done so much <laughs> in your young life. Wow. <laughs> and, and forgive me, um, and I, I would apologize to you and any of my listeners um, if I sound matronly um, when I deal with Xavier, <laughs> because I've, I've known him from a youth, and he's no longer a youth, and neither am I. <laughs> At any rate, I want, to, I want to thank you so much for joining us, Xavier. Thank you, Valerie. And, thank you. And, mm-hmm. and before we get started, can you tell us how you came to start Justice Informed? Yeah. Um, well, it, it's in the backdrop of, the, of, of when I decided entrepreneurial an entrepreneurial life was, was now for me. Um, you know, I've been working in different types of institutions and, and, and over the arc of my uh, career, I've been really just gathering information and perspectives. Um, I like to kind of couch it as I, I've, I've wanted to see um, where and how the confusion manifested um, that creates social <laughs> injustice. And, um, mm-hmm. and that's across different sectors. So my first job, as you noted, right, I was in the, the financial sector, but I switched over to social impact and became a development director. And that really gave me a great insight into understanding the economics of social change, which is the philanthropic side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it also mm-hmm. <laughs> pushed me to see the huge disconnects between privileged communities and non-privileged communities. Um, and those are linguistic disconnects around the vocabulary that they use to represent themselves over to financial differences, over to cultural differences, and you name it. Um, and when you're in philanthropy, mm-hmm. it spe- specifically, um, you, you're seeing a really interesting way that um, whiteness specifically manifests itself in America as it relates to social mm-hmm. capital as well as economic capital. Um, and so as a head of fundraising, you spend a lot of time around predominantly white people because they're usually the ones with money, um, given how the labor market uh, is and, and how discrimination works and how the histories of these things happen. You, you don't tend to fundraise in communities of color. And I, I, I'm adding all of that because with Justice Informed, um, you know, when you're talking about social change, um, oftentimes you're talking about explaining oppression to people who either did not know or did not intend to be oppressive. Um, but the way the mm-hmm. systemic injustice works is it's sort of like a click in thing. You just have to sit in a chair and it goes by itself. Um, mm-hmm. And and whether you meant to or not, you're moving forward. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and with Justice Informed, that's a lot of what we do. And I started to see my skill sets aligning um, from fundraising to moving over to managing um, a philanthropic portfolio of funds and strategies with United Way um, uh, over to my work at the University of Chicago and looking very broadly at the intersections of people, policies, and place um, and, and moving forward strategic initiatives to bring students and staff and faculty into the work of shifting our, our city for the better. And uh, enough people kept coming up to me and being like, hey, can you uh, help us out on this project or can you advise us on this thing or um, you know, what's, what's your rate for, uh, you know, doing this type of an, a data analysis and, and such. I said, you know, maybe there's a way to turn this into full-time work. Um, mm-hmm. And that couched with what I saw happening at the federal government, you know, with our mm-hmm. election in 2016 of President Trump, um, and particularly the, wor- the words I heard when Steve Bannon left the White House. They oh. really, really fueled me. Um, because he, he, he said something that I think is important for everybody to think about. He said, we're going to finish the work that the Trump presidency was started for. Um, and, he, you know, if you think about what his post is, he runs a media agency, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's, that's around how people see things to provoke how they think about things. Um, and so consulting fundamentally, um, you know, I sell thoughts. That's what I do for a living. I sell thoughts. Those thoughts are strategies. Um, those strategies create efficiencies for our clients. 
Um, and they also, but they also help to contextualize the world that they live in so that they can make better decisions based off of the information that they're receiving. Um, and, and that, when I started Just Inform, I was looking at it not just as a, hey, I'm already good at this. Let's see if it can turn into a, a revenue-generating thing. But it also turned into a, I need to get out of the um, empowerment game and get into mm-hmm. being a foot soldier for this work. Um, I was empowering people because I was teaching students how to do this stuff. Um, but I just wanted to get, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to get my hands in myself to build the thing that, you know, with students, it's a, it may take five, ten years for them to turn, turn the work into something. Um, and I've already mm-hmm. had those years, and so I felt mm-hmm. that I needed to build that thing right now, right now. <laughs> okay. That is exciting. So this, to me, sounds more like your vocation, I guess, for, for lack of a, a better word. It's like a calling. That, that's what I'm hearing as you describe it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's not, it's not a job. <laughs> right, not right. A job. I, no, you it know, couldn't any, be. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like, no, no. It's, <laughs> no, because I, I see, you know, I, See you out and about, um, see you on social media, and everything you say and do just oozes what you just described. You know, so you're not describing a company. You're describing really who you are, and, and that's very authentic. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I learned this, you know, when I, when, I, when I left the institutional social impact space, which was philanthropy and nonprofits and all of that stuff, and I went into direct organizing, um, mm-hmm. and or rather direct action campaigning with the Let Us Breathe Collective, I got a, a totally different look at the point of politics um, and the point of institutions. And one of the things that resonated with me most deeply was the call to create alternatives, um, not to just call out what is, but to establish mm-hmm. and to create what needs to be as an example and then let the world choose whether they want it or not. You know, mm-hmm. and, and, and that that is a creative process. That's an imaginative process. Mm -hmm. Um, And it requires a commitment not to the production itself or to the product, but Mm -hmm. a commitment to the process and saying, Mm -hmm. you know, just like with raising a kid or with, with loving someone, you know, you can't commit to what it's going to become because you have no idea what it's going to be, but you do have to commit to living through the time for it to develop into it. Um, And that Mm -hmm. has uh, up and down and that's a, you know, with kids, it's tough, you know, <laughs> you know, sometimes they'll say you don't know anything. And five years ago, you thought I was great, you know. <laughs> you know, now you think I'm not cool. And, you know, right. um, before you know, your with, hormones with, kicked in, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, but you got to, you commit to the process, not to the product. You're not right. committed to creating an adult. Right. You're committed to walking with someone. And fundamentally, our consulting model, and the model that I'm still trying to, to fine-tune, um, is, is, is a relationship-based model that's focused on creating an invitation by establishing a standard in a new alternative. Mm-hmm. And um, not to put words in your mouth again, but listening to you, it sounds like your firm is really in some ways the intersection of capitalism and activism. You, you know, we tend to look at the two, at least the conversations I'm a part of, we, we look at the two as not being able to coexist is usually the capitalist versus the activist out on the street. But to listen to the way you describe your approach, it sounds like there is a space where the two can actually coexist. Well, I mean, capitalism is a form of activism. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think, so to be, well, you know, to be specific, um, people would say okay. that the opposite of capitalism is like socialism or something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, right? And whether the two can exist. I think that fundamentally um, um, hyper-capitalism, many, many parts of capitalism are problematic to the, the proliferation of the human species itself. If you look at, um, mm-hmm. I was going to say little things, but after the report that the, 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 <laughs> the Global Climate Control Commission just put out this weekend, um, essentially saying that the Earth has until 2040 um, before we we have completed the cycle of doing irreparable harm um, and oh, wow. merging a lot of the island nations that sit in the Pacific and the Atlantic, um, you know, just by moving 
the, 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 the global temperature up two degrees as a result of our consumption habits. And capitalism is based off of a model that says production is the priority. Production creates opportunities, which is, which is true. The challenge is, is mm-hmm. you, can, you, know, you can produce plastics, but you can't produce plastics fast enough to clean them up, to stop the harm mm. that plastics then do. Um, yeah. And so if your model is all about failing, failing fast, you don't, you're not accounting for how much it costs to fail and how much it costs some people for you to fail if you keep failing and they have to pay the cost. And that's the fundamental mm-hmm. flaw I find in capitalism. Um, to your point, what I will say is that I think that a, an institutional systems approach um, is possible in a world of social activism, mm-hmm. and that's what we try to bridge. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the call of activists is, is, is for people at the top um, and for people who have power to, to think about the full costs. You know, my background in economics, you know, economics, the definition is the study of the allocation of scarce resources. Um, mm-hmm. And based upon that, you're, you're inherently assuming competition is required because you're saying that resources are scarce. Well, if resources are scarce, then I don't, I'm not going to have everybody as my friend because I need what they got. <laughs> right. right? If, if water is scarce, then we're going to fight because I need that water. Um, now, if we think about what it means to have an abundance theory, we then have to go back to, well, how much do I really need? You know, and can we find efficiencies where I can draw, I can reduce my effect, my social cost effect in the world and do that in such a demonstrable way that it allows you to live how you need to live, not just how you want to live, if you want to have, you know, the big house and all the cars and, you know, suck up 5,000 pounds of carbon credits every year because um, you like to fly <laughs> everywhere instead of, you know, riding a bicycle or taking a train, um, then that's on you, you know. Um, but but mm-hmm. this is a growing world, and we have to be more conscientious. So, you know, what we're trying to do is not to show how distinctly different activism is or capitalism is, um, but to show people how everyone, everyone needs to move forward with grace, but we also have to mm-hmm. center the needs of the most marginalized um, and that mm-hmm. the production model that capitalism is based on creates the need for things like philanthropy and the things like justice informed. Um, and until mm-hmm. it reconciles that, um, it will continue to produce the need for it. Okay, awesome. So, Getting back to Justice Informed, a cornerstone of the work that you do is diversity, equity, and inclusion, or what we like to say, DEI. So we're all on the same page with definitions. What do you mean by DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion? Yeah, I mean, well, first it's it's understanding the evolution of the terms, right? So diversity is a is a representative defi- is a representative word. It just means that someone's present. Um, so, mm-hmm. for instance, <clears throat> um, an orchard can have diversity because you have more than one type of apple, but they're all apples, right? So oranges will be mm-hmm. looking over there like, hey, what's up with all the apples over there, right? <laughs> um, and the apples are sitting there. <laughs> we're like, well, there's a lot of diversity here. We got Jonna Gold, we got Fuji, we got Red Delicious, we got Yellow, we got Green. We got tons of apples, tons of diversity. Um, and that, that's where the, I'm seeing the more sophisticated fight against diversity is turning into that argument um, where they say, well, we, we want diversity of thought. And so, you know, an entire company of white men, um, because they all come from different experiences, is now diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's also why diversity is never going to be enough. Um, so after you got that, you got inclusion, which is the inclusion and understanding of how power is demonstrated and distributed throughout an institution or a society. And that's an evolutionary step from diversity. Um, and that's an important mm-hmm. one because it talks about agency and voice. And when you're talking about a workplace, you're talking about how people have access to advancement opportunities or how people are able to um, uh, uh, speak even just in meetings, um, the question of, mm-hmm. of, of what happens when someone um, is harassed and do they feel like they're under duress to not report because it would put their job in jeopardy because, you know, there's no one like them in the firm and everyone, you know, everyone doesn't agree um, that that type of thing would be harassment, um, perhaps just because they've never been harassed and they don't think anyone uh, would be harassed. I've had those conversations with, with execs who, 
you know, operate in, in predominantly male areas, and they just make complete assumptions that every guy in there knows how to act right and already is with no evaluative tool, no legal protections whatsoever. They're just completely sure that everybody's just a good guy. Um, and, and they also have not been able to retain a woman <laughs> working outside of administration <laughs> for years. Um, but, but that sort of a thing exists. Um, and then equity is totally equity is where people start to disagree <laughs> um, right. because equity, this is a personal definition. I'm not sure everybody's going to agree with this, but this is just my okay. own definition of equity. Um, equity builds upon the representative priorities of diversity and the power differentials that are provided through inclusion um, to create an opportunity that moves through time to restore as well as to build, mm-hmm. um, particularly centering those who have been left out and most marginalized mm-hmm. by a set of processes and cultural norms um, that were created without their inclusion and without their expectation for prospering. Um, mm-hmm. Equity is something that says we're going we're gonna to go back and repair something um, and that every action that we do is going to be one that not only repairs, but it, it ensures that it doesn't happen again. Inclusion doesn't mean that it won't happen again. You know, inclusion mm-hmm. just means that you let people speak who haven't spoken, but that doesn't mean that they'll be able to speak next year. If one person changes and doesn't think that that's important, then those people don't get to speak anymore. And so fundamentally, mm-hmm. equity is about creating infrastructure over initiatives. Um, a lot of people mm-hmm. have a, a DEI initiative and that can be taken away. You know, it's, 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 it's sort of like the difference between saying, why can't we all just get along versus creating the 13th <laughs> Amendment, right? Well, first right, you've got right, to right. abolish slavery, okay? And then we've got to be able to hold you accountable for that. Because <laughs> I, I would like to think that y'all would be nice, but the history here doesn't, you know, allow for that. Um, <laughs> and so, so I need some infrastructure, civic infrastructure, to ensure that I'm protected and that this doesn't happen again. And if it does, that I don't have to spend 30 years in, in a lawsuit to prove it, bankrupting myself and my family in the process. And then, too, I think people get equity and equality confused. Oh, you know, yeah, equality that's, that's, doesn't that's necessarily... confused. Okay, I mean, so equality can is... you... <laughs> yeah, I can, I, can, I can provide some clarity on that. Um, yeah. E- e- equality is woke light. Um, you know, it's 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 a good buzzword, um, but it's ahistorical, and that's the problem with mm-hmm. it. Um, equality is about making everything zero sum today, um, but even then, you can't do that um, simply because people are human, and so we still operate off mm-hmm. of our biases. You can say that every every you know one one measure of equality people talk about. Um, is um, uh, um, the minimum wage um, and then extending minimum wage into a um, uh, sort of a government expenditure specifically for a minimum income. And so every person gets the same amount of money, right? So let's say that there's a minimum income established. Some countries have tried this. Minimum income established as an anti-poverty measure and the minimum income is established for the U.S. of $20,000 a year. So everybody gets twenty grand. The challenge is, mm-hmm. is it's ahistorical because it actually is more expensive um, to be poor, and you have a higher likelihood of being poor um, proportionally to the percentage of your population if you're a person of color, even more so if you're indigenous, even more so if you're a woman, even more so if you're LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. And so those varying degrees of marginality compound the effect um, of, of loss of, of, of value of each dollar. Um, so, for example... Um, equality would say everybody gets 20 grand. Equity would say, yeah, but the people of color here have, have, have bail to pay. Um, the social determinants of health in their communities mean that their rates of preventable diseases are going to be higher. They have differentiated mm-hmm. access to health care, which increases their costs. They have a lower um, rate of home ownership, meaning that even though they may make $20,000 cash, they don't have um, any fixed assets with, if a disaster should come. Um, leaving them at a higher risk for things like homo, um, homelessness um, mm-hmm. and, and down the line. So the 20 grand just doesn't, it doesn't mean as much to everybody because of how their identities have impacted their lives. 
And so mm-hmm. you would have to take an equity focus that says, well, what would it take given the, 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 the menu of circumstances that the average, if you did a demographic analysis, the average person of color who's specifically black, specifically living on the west side, would have? And what is then the notional value that is commensurate to $20,000 for a white person experiencing the same um, city? Mm-hmm. Right, Equity would have a different number. Equality would have the oh. same number. And it would be less because of that. That's a really interesting and very, very important concept. So why would corporations and foundations and even nonprofits why would anybody other than, you know, rank and file people even care about DEI? Uh, well, one one reason um not caring about it is no longer sustainable. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. Um, <laughs> you know, you can you can ride you can ride injustice for a while, but um the challenge is that when you have a bet like what America was trying to make, which is this this on paper inclusive nation, uh well really on paper diverse nation, um with fighting inclusive nation, um and with the heart set it can be an equitable nation. Um the challenge with that is the legal order often pre- always precedes a change in the social order. For example, um, in 64, when the Civil Rights Act was passed, everybody, you talk to some people and they say that uh, racism was, was, was eliminated. The Civil Rights Act said you can't be racist. It's done. Done. Why are y'all protesting? Done. You got the Civil Rights Act. That was the point. Martin Luther King. Yeah. I have a dream, too. Um, and then they'll, you know, sort Obama's of pick out president. the parts they like. Yeah, yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's uh, exception-based justice. Um, and, and it's not a standardized way of dealing with people. So the reason why I think corporations and nonprofits, and those are very, there are very different reasons why those two types of institutions should care. Um, but I'll say with corporations, mm-hmm. you have an increasing number of your work, uh, percentage of your workforce is coming in expecting that you not only are able to attend to their identity, but that you understand it. Um, and that's the challenge mm-hmm. with, with these segregated neighborhoods. Um, people may know that black people exist. They have no idea how they experience life. No idea. They're three mm-hmm. miles away from them. Um, you know, mm-hmm. they may know that there's an immigration fight going on in the country, but, you know, two Muslims walk into the workplace and this, you know, Christian evangelical has no idea what to think or how to engage. You know, so, so even though you have that diversity, mm-hmm. you have no way of creating real interaction uh, because of the challenge around, around cultural context. Um, that thing can create a very, very difficult work environment where it, it's, it's, you know, and this is the funny thing about the time we live in now. Um, microaggressions are, are, and by microaggressions I mean casual slights of language or physical actions that, um, that either diminish or directly insult someone who has a marginalized identity um, and is often mm-hmm. done to demean them, though the person who did the microaggression may not be aware that that's what they did. It's the little stuff like asking mm-hmm. somebody, um, you know, so where are you, like, from, from, right, because they don't look white or they don't look, right. you know, stereotypically black, like they look racially ambiguous, and you just won't believe that they're from the U.S. <laughs> um, or you speak English so well. You're so articulate, <laughs> right, no. presuming that yeah, I didn't expect that you would know how to speak because of the color of your skin or – you know the, the 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 shape of your face or whatever. Um, it's 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 a surprise to me that you can speak like I can speak. Um, I just didn't expect the education level to be high. Those are microaggressions, mm-hmm. and those things are on the rise because more people are coming into the workplace who are different than people have ever been in the workplace. Not only that, they're gaining positions of power, and so when you go up in title in a workplace, they're expecting not to be disrespected. I think that everybody should expect not to be disrespected, but the higher up people go, generally they expect that they're going to get more respect. And mm-hmm. so when you are insulted, even if you're insulted um, with the person not meaning to insult you, it does have an effect. Um, and that graduated effect is experienced in the institutions like corporations um, through attrition rates and people just leaving. So I'm not putting up with this. You know, I'm, I just made a partner at this law firm, 
and you know the other partners. I'm the only woman here, and I'm men, and they make these casual jokes that they think is okay, that they think are okay, and they call it locker room and just boys talk, and it's offensive and it's harassment. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know they don't have an equity policy, they don't have a substantive grievance policy, so she really has no recourse except to to resign, or she can lodge. Isn't a formal that ironic? The EOC here, yeah. And so they, they a keep law firm wouldn't have people. those things in place. Well, they might not. They might. But I'm just saying that there's a lot of companies that yeah. don't have, you know, um, the yeah. right structures in place. Um, you know, especially when you've got the number of startups mm-hmm. that we've got. People are starting their companies, writing up employee manuals and establishing HR protocols, right? <laughs> like, um, <laughs> you know, they don't have, like, mental health hotlines because, you know, they added four new people who don't look like the first 20 people, and they know that the first 20 people that they hired, if they're, you know, all one type of person, likely may not understand how to work with these other four different people. And those people then are going to experience an emotional and mental labor that the other 20 don't. And if, 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 if the past, if the present is anything like the past, when you let those 20 people know that they're offending somebody, the first thing they're going to do is to send to themselves and say, well, I wasn't mean. I didn't mean to do that. I didn't do it. I don't know what you're talking about. It's not racism. It's not sexism. They're going to, they're going to point it back to them. And most people don't even know how to not do that. <laughs> right? When you hear someone is offended, the first thing you say is just, hey, sorry, you know, it, it wasn't my intent, but I want to make sure that you're okay. Um, it's not about me right now and how offended I feel. Um, I want to make sure that um, I'm, I'm identifying exactly where you say you felt hurt, um, and I want to do that in a non Most people don't do that. You know, they'll just say, what are you talking about? I'm not racist. Why would you even, uh, you know, assume that? I didn't mean that. You know, they'll, they'll try to cover their tracks, um, which only – is more traumatizing <laughs> and creates even more frustration for the person who is insulted or harassed or otherwise. It's a, it's a typical yeah, police approach, you know. They, it's interrogation mm-hmm. versus, you know, relationship building. Yeah, I remember when I started in corporate, I used to work for a bank, and people would tell me that those little slights that you're talking about were all in my head. Oh, it's, it's oh, all yeah. in your head. Yeah. It's your imagination. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a whole other side of, of, I mean, I'll particularly say this, Valerie, you are a woman and you're black. And so you've got this double-edged sword um, of, mm-hmm. of a lack of credibility when it comes to believability. You know, right. being believed is a form of currency. It's social currency. You know, it's what, when we look at things like Tamir Rice, an 11-year-old boy, and then the cop who was in the car with the cop who shot Tamir said, I didn't even know that was a kid, Right. When they, when they, you know, you do the testimony mm-hmm. and they'll say, well, he looked like he was six feet tall. You know, the believability of a child to be a child can be, can have life or death circumstances um, or, or effects, you know, um, and, and with women in the workplace, believability is, look at what we just saw with Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court Justice nomination. Right. You know, look at what we saw when Donald Trump was, was, was being elected and his comments about women. And, you know, even though, you know, it, I mean, <laughs> he's got he's got allegations from all types of, of women, you know, porn stars and you name it. Um, but the credibility of those women is based off of the believability of their gender. And then people, after they say, is your gender credible, then they may move to, is your story credible? And you had a double-edged sword mm-hmm. working for you. And that's just statistically shown. I don't have to dig into the details. I just know that a lot of guys <laughs> have biases towards listening to women and being able to believe them. Right. That's just the data. Okay, so at this point, I want to remind our listening audience that you're listening to the Nonprofit Utopia podcast, and we're speaking with Xavier Ramey. Xavier is the CEO and lead strategist for Justice Informed, and we're about a little bit over the halfway mark. And if you have any questions, please feel free to post your questions. You can call in. The number is 347-884-8121. I do see that we do have a caller. Um, This person's phone number is 773-510-3326. I'm going to turn your mic on. If you have any questions, if you have any comments, please uh, feel free to share. If you don't have any questions, just, just say hello. 
Okay, caller at 773-510-3326. Your mic is live. Okay, we seem to have lost the caller. Um, This person did not speak, but I I hope that this person would call in and contribute to the conversation. I'm, I'm finding the conversation to be very interesting If there are other callers, please uh, feel free to call in. Again, that number is 347-884-8121. Feel free also to post questions and comments in the chat room um, if you don't do anything else, but post your name and let us know where you're from. Um, That would be wonderful as well. And before we get back to the conversation with Xavier, I just want to give a plug for the nonprofit Utopia Community. Uh, We're the ideal community for emerging nonprofit leaders, and we've created a safe environment in which our members can innovate, speak candidly about the issues and concerns that they face on a daily basis. So this podcast is part of that experience, and you can hear the candor in this conversation, and we get even more candid in our community. So if you want to learn more, go to www.nonprofitutopia.com. If you want to learn more about the community, go to nonprofitutopia.mn.co. And just so you know, our mission is to provide ongoing professional development and networking opportunities in which experienced nonprofit professionals such as myself can share expertise with the next generation of ethical leaders, you know, people like Xavier, even though, you know, Xavier could probably coach folks in my generation on a few things. So the and, and that's true. That's very true. And the overarching goal of the community is give our members the tools that they need to develop strong organizations that will make a lasting impact and are Big vision is to strengthen the global nonprofit sector by providing training and development opportunities for 50,000 emerging nonprofit leaders throughout the world by 2033. So that's that's a huge vision, and we will do that one person at a time. And for you, Xavier, getting back, uh, I, I'm just curious, what are some of the ways that you can get companies to actually invest in communities, particularly those communities in which the talent pipelines for diverse workers can be constrained by the mass incarceration system. You know, how do you make the case for them to invest? Yeah, well, first, first you, you know, it's, it's a simple conversation, just analyzing where their current investments are actually root-focused um, versus the effect of the root. So, one of the differentiation strategies I always recommend people to do is, um, one, you have to see who cares about, who, who's actually evaluating the efficacy of your community right. strategy. Um, and so if that's not community-informed, um, then that's going to be a problem up front. So, but then there's mm-hmm. the question of if it is community-informed, then who defines the community, so to speak? Um, and that's where your mm-hmm. listening hat really has to go on. And it, it requires you to engage for some time in, in actual listening which a lot of people just don't do when they're, they're constructing strategies. Many companies create community initiatives and, and plans based off of either compliance or marketing needs, so they may, or, or it may mm-hmm. be an engagement strategy for their team. So they want to, like, build team cohesion. So they say, let's all go out together someday and do something. Um, and they, they, ideally, they want to say, well, we want to provide a social good and be able to document it. Um, so then you need mm-hmm. to, obviously, you got to wake up some nonprofit executive director at 8 a.m. on a Saturday. Um, and, um, and you get your whole team out there and you volunteer. Um, mm-hmm. The other reason why they would do it is, is just straight-up marketing, right? We know that there's a, a 18 to 20% premium on socially good um, uh, products and services in the U.S. So that's the whole Tom's Shoes model, right? If you're able to say, yeah, percentage of this goes back to people who are less less fortunate, or um, you know, uh, target rate. Five percent of of your sales using the target red card goes back to communities um, in the form of scholarships or something. Um, mm-hmm. People are more willing to shop there, and so people use that as a form of marketing. Um, and the third one is just straight compliance, where it's like with banks, the Community Reinvestment Act of '77 requires that they put money on the street um, and in mm-hmm. the form of lending. 
small business dollars as well as financial empowerment and sustainability programming. And so they usually go through nonprofits, and many of them have structured their CRA um, to, to – that's an internal-facing thing. Externally, it may be considered to be the foundation of the bank. Right, and so they're not—they're not necessarily giving mm-hmm. back profits. They're giving away mandated dollars that the government requires because they're taking checkable deposits from a black community. So by law, they're required to lend. Um, and that's because of what happened with redlining um, back in the, the mid and early 20th century. And so we look at all that and say, all right, that may be why you're doing it, but you know, how can we be more effective? How can we be more impactful? How can we get you to be more root focused? And so first it's evaluating Mm -hmm. whatever you're doing, however you're doing it, we have to identify the root. And so when you use the example of mass incarceration, so it's it's simply an exercise with a a potential client saying, what are the roots of mass incarceration? And a lot of people, Mm -hmm. you'd be surprised, a lot of people haven't really thought about it. I meet people all the time who have never read The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, (laughs) never heard of it. Right, you wow. say mass incarceration, they just think, oh yeah, a lot of people go to jail. When you show them the numbers, they're like, well, I didn't know it was that many. And then you can start to construct that web back and say, well, then what supports mass incarceration? Well, uh, partly it's bad educational models, right? Um, secondly, it's the mm-hmm. believability of of a skin color, um, as we saw with like Tamir Rice and Eric Garner and Mike Brown and 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 Rakia Boyd and others. Um, but then you've also got issues of income inequality and poverty. And so you look at all those different routes, and then you just work with your client and say, well, which one do you actually want to address? Which one aligns with you? Now, once we've identified that, what are the actual strategies that get you to that? The challenge you're going to mm-hmm. find there is whether people actually want to dig into that stuff. So if you want to dig into, like, how do we keep kids in classrooms in North Lawndale, right, knowing that mm-hmm. the suspension rate is incredibly high, um, for black males in schools in Chicago. Well, mm-hmm. suspension rate right. is high, and we know that black males are, are usually picked up by police when they're outside of school or home. <laughs> like, police aren't usually running into a school specifically to arrest kids because they're, like, walking through the hallway, though there may be and are usually armed police guards in black schools. We would then say, well, to the company, hey, how, how can you then help to offset the things that lead to suspensions? And so then we'll look at specific schools. Well, let's see. Are there any um, – is it a, a, an issue of the fact that they don't have any clinical social workers working there? And kids in that community are mm-hmm. often experiencing instances of community violence because of issues with guns in their neighborhood, and there's nowhere for them to vent, talk about it, understand it, and their parents don't know how to process that with them. They just say, hey, you know, it's a tough neighborhood. Make sure you keep your grades up so you can leave one day. You know, so then how then can companies mm-hmm. get ahead of that by understanding the issues within policing and then moving directly to support the social service structures and resources that many times public and civic budgets don't allow for. Now, that's an interesting approach. Had I not spoken to you, I, my response probably would have been focused on, like, tax credits and other incentives. I never would have looked at the human approach. I never would have looked at... Um, starting off from, say, preschool all you know all the way up to high school, except in curriculum development, and I really like uh-huh. your holistic approach. Well, there's, I mean, part and, of it is there's two mm-hmm. sides. There's the person, and then there's the the system or the environment that they live in. So many people say, mm-hmm. if we want to keep kids out of jail, go tutor the kids so they get better grades. Right, better performing students tend to have lower suspension rates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I believe that that's true. Um, better performing mm-hmm. kids do have lower suspension rates, and a lower suspension rate means that they're in school. Um, it also increases morale when you're not constantly being punished. <laughs> um, and, uh, but, but, but the challenge there is, is that that's still not really addressing the root, but as well as the probability of, of how many people are caught up in those systems. Um, one mm-hmm. of the reasons why we go after things like money bail um, and Justice Informed, I've positioned it to support the fight against money bail in Cook County specifically um, because we have a ton of clients who are like, hey, we need more, more uh, people of color from the South and West Sides to be our employees. And I'd say that's great. <laughs> you know, that's, mm-hmm. That sounds really awesome. Um, 
what types of jobs do you have? And if they've got where they're hiring people who are, you know, entry level or early career or even mid-career middle wage, some of their employees might be in jail. Mm-hmm. You know, those people that they're looking for, when, when we look at the stats and see that one out of three black men in Chicago, or really in America, sorry, is going to go through the criminal justice system. And then you, you, wow. you pair that information with public policy data around unemployment rates for people with backgrounds, knowing that, you know, the police for people, like Chicago has 13,600 or so police officers, sworn police officers, um, the wow. EEOC... Um, basically the police for businesses who discriminate um, only has a couple dozen enforcement agents for every business in the country, right? So you you look at 13,000 people who are trying to catch the everyday person versus a couple dozen who are trying to catch, and 13,000 just in Chicago, a couple dozen people, you know, 60, 70, 80 people who are looking to enforce the Civil Rights Act of 64. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You're never going to win that. <laughs> You're never right. going to win that. Um, and so you then have to prevent people from going to jail because the EEOC is, is the arbiter of the issues when um, employers are screening people for backgrounds, for, for jobs that have nothing to do with the background. It's just so you know, it's illegal for a company to screen a person um, for a job um, when, they, when, when the, the crime had nothing to do with the, with the job that they're applying for. So, um, for instance, like UPS can, it, it, they can't discriminate on somebody who has uh, a background, a criminal background, and they find out that that background included, like, um, um, let's say, um, uh, uh, public endangerment or, or alcohol, right? Like they were drunk in the streets, public intoxication. Mm-hmm. Um, but they can screen a person out if they have something like theft, because UPS handles all mm-hmm. types of packages. <laughs> um, you know, so, so it, it has to have something to do with that. Um, but who's checking, really? Nobody's checking. You know, right, the right. that, you know people okay. who have backgrounds have to feel like, okay. yeah. Xavier? Okay, I'm sorry. It looks like we have another caller. I'm not sure if this person is calling just to hear okay. more clearly or yeah. if this person may have a question. Um, I'm going to make the mic live for the person who's, Phone number is 312-880-7841. If you have a question or comment, please share it with us. Um, your mic should be live right now. Did you have a question or comment? Well, I do, I do have a comment. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I go back as far as Mr. Xavier's childhood. This is Mr. DeVell Banks, Uh-oh. Mr. Xavier. How are oh, you, Oh, my goodness. <laughs> hey, <Bill. laughs> How are you, sir? Man, it's uh, been a long time. <laughs> it has been a while, sir. It it has been a while. So I, I told you, brother, I definitely wanted to tune into the show to call in and support. And as well as you, you all were touching on a, a subject a, a little bit ago about the microaggression comments. Yep. One of the mm-hmm. comments that I'm sure you get quite a bit because I, I get it as well is that you know you you sound white or you you speak very proper mm-hmm. uh that that is definitely one of those microaggressions and yeah. there's really no co- comeback from that it's like no i speak normal you know and I, you get it from both mm-hmm. sides you get it from you right. know your community as well as you know i call it the vanilla community so you you get it from both sides so it's almost like you you don't fit in just because you speak normal speak. So that was one of my comments. And, and well, actually, I have one more. You were just talking about mm-hmm. our education system. You know, even mm-hmm. if you take a look at our education system right now, the whole, everything ha- in, in our life gets an upgrade. Uh, our phones get upgraded once a year. Our cars get upgraded once a year. Software gets upgraded three, four times a year. Yet our educational system is the same exact educational system we've had <laughs> since the beginning of time. Stuff a whole bunch of people in a room that they don't want to be in in the first place, put somebody in the front of that room to train basically a robot. And we teach people, especially now uh, in this day and age, we teach kids how to, to take tests. They have no real cognitive ability to figure out problems. 
to understand the problems, to, to actually work their way back from the end up to the beginning. So the whole system and in, in the way we teach is archaic. So those, mm-hmm. are, those are my only two comments. But I, I love what you're doing. I want to call in and definitely support you, and I'm, I'm 100% behind you, brother. Thanks, Giselle. I'll, um, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll provide some feedback on the first one around microaggressions and that specific one that you're talking about. Um, I think that the time we're in allows us for um, an agency opportunity, uh, really an advocacy opportunity for those of us who are people of color who are in institutions that are more privileged or higher wage or otherwise um, uh, endowed. Um, it, it creates an opportunity for us to not other our own. Um, and uh, I've started to really push back against um, even even stating that linguistic differences are 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 an evaluative mechanism for one's intelligence. Um, this starts mm-hmm. with everything from like pull your pants up over to uh, put on a suit over to stop talking like that. Um, you talk black, mm-hmm. or you talk with a black scent or something like that. Um, because what it if if we respond and say uh, we sound normal um, or we talk normal as people of color, if we respond in that way. Um, then it, it, it's actually validating for the other person that there is a different way of speaking and it is less than, but I'm not one of them and I don't speak like that. Um, mm-hmm. And, and it, it, it doesn't allow for us to, to advocate for people who rarely are in the room sometimes because they don't speak like we speak. Right. And, and particularly when we have, I, <laughs> this is just a strategy thing. Like the first thing you're trying to convince somebody is not to tell them what you think, but it's to get them to like you. People like to agree with people. They, they're more likely to agree with somebody they like. Um, and, and so the first thing I always do is, is try to make friends with people who insult me, which is, it sounds a little odd. Uh, mm-hmm. um, but it's just a strategy <laughs> that does. I found. Especially helpful. if you grew up in Lawndale. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you, got, you make friends with people who insult you. And it's not, it's not like you're making long-term friends with them, but you are for this conversation right. establishing something, some way for them to see <laughs> to experience you in such a way that they're willing to listen. Right, um, right. And, and so oftentimes I'm like critiquing, I'm literally critiquing saying, hey, not only do I not talk like that, talking like that isn't a bad thing. Because um, I know a lot of people who mm-hmm. talk like that who are brilliant people. Um, right. Who talk differently than me. And, and the very privileges that I've accrued over time as a black man, because I talk like this, which is not talking white, so to speak, um, mm-hmm. I would, I would say it's more so assimilated conversation, um, you know, because there, there are many people of different colors and cultures who talk like this, and it has nothing to do with their skin. It has to do with whether they've assimilated into normative language um, that, that proliferates structural white supremacy through vocabulary, um, through, through mm-hmm. linguistics, rather. Um, and because I don't want to perpetuate white supremacy, I then have to um, advocate for a broader understanding of language and a, a broader um, listening capacity for language that doesn't assume somebody doesn't know something just because they talk differently. Right, right, right. That's a really long-winded way of saying that. <laughs> I, I, I love the way you can go into detail and really expound on these issues. And um, I, I guess we've got time for one more question. Um, what are some of the lessons that you've learned along the way? Uh, well, one of them, you know, I just shared, you know, people like to talk to people who they like. <laughs> right, right. That's, that's a tough um, one. I'm, and I'm still I, grappling with that I, one. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's a hard thing to just try to make change when you realize mm-hmm. that the change has to happen through people. Um, right. And once you accept, and this is one of the things I've learned, once you just accept where people are at, these conversations around, you know, social injustice and white supremacy and corporate um, responsibility and social, I've had these conversations with all types of people from the White House on down to Lawndale over to, um, you know, indigenous nations reservations over to white supremacists, avowed and, and spoken, declared white supremacists. Um, and you, you really, you really have to be willing and able to, if you're going to do this work and not cause chaos down the pipeline, 
I mean the pipeline meaning the people you come from because you're mm-hmm. supposed to be causing chaos in the communities you're going into. But that chaos has to be seen as hope, right? It has to be seen as right. an invitation. It has to be seen as a form of care, of imaginative care. Because you're essentially asking, when we're asking people to be equitable, we're asking them to replace the world as they know it with something else. And that's a hard sell. That's a hard sell. And so you have to yeah. be tactical. You have to be strategic. You have to be situationally empathic. You have to know how to hold and draw lines. You have to know how to care for people. You have to know how to be a teacher for people. You have to know how to be a pastor for people. You got to know how to do therapy for people. <laughs> you got to know how to model what all of that looks like as an inform, right? Like I have to model what I'm saying. Equity not just mm-hmm. is in the world, but looks like when it's lived. For them to say mm-hmm. it's possible. If I can't do that, then they don't see an endpoint. And if they don't see an endpoint, they're not going to shift their entire worldview around something that they can't understand, haven't seen, and barely believe. Right. And I think for us practitioners, that's what I've learned along the way and I've been implementing just for the last couple years. Mm -hmm. Um, You have to be the thing that you're saying they need to be, even if you come from a position of oppression, where you Mm -hmm. were the oppressed people, you were a kid growing up in North Lawndale without two pennies to put together. You Mm -hmm. have to be that model of what hope looks like manifested. You have to be that conscientious care for the unheard oppressor. You have to be that strong arm of support that cradles people who are in need, who are still living through things while still telling them we have to keep going further. I know it hurts. You know, and that's Mm -hmm. why, you know, one of the things I I try to get everybody to realize the importance of is, you you know, you have to consider all of this work to be joy. You know, from a Christian perspective, that's just James 3, 2, right? right? Like um, James 1, 2, sorry. Um, Consider it all joy when you find yourself in times of tribulation um, because it will make you stronger, which means that when it looks really bad, you you have to force yourself to think what's really awesome about this right now. I'm sitting around, you know. Kavanaugh just got appointed to the thing. Donald Trump is talking about revoking visas for same-sex partners. The police got 500 more recruits. (laughs) Where's the joy? (laughs) You've got to to find it. You've got to find it because they may not be able to, to manufacture it, and they won't believe it exists unless you show them. Oh, that is so beautiful. And and forgive me for so, sounding so doting. I am so proud of you. I am really, really proud, you <laughs> know, proud for our listening. <laughs> Thank you for our listening audience. I, I met Xavier when he was in high school. He participated in one of our youth programs, one of our youth grant-making programs, and I was the executive director of the small grants program. And I just watched watch you over the years and how you have just, grown and you speak truth to power and your voice is just you know extended you know literally through all ends of the globe and you know you don't show any signs of letting up i no, am proud up. i know you're I, <laughs> I get it from my daddy i just cuss less yes i was just about, right, right right i was about to say your dad would be proud mike trout my mom know, is yeah been, yeah <laughs> I mean, the whole community, we, we all own you. It must be nice to have so many parents and brothers and sisters. And, oh, it's a beautiful and all thing. That I mean, if the village truly did raise a child. <laughs> right. And and you're doing some wonderful stuff. And, and with that, you know, I'm going to have to bring this podcast to a close. I'm wondering, you know, if there's anything else that you'd like to add, you know, before we go. I would just say, hey, everybody, keep watching. Um, you know, if you want to get in contact with, with me, feel free. Um, on all the accounts, I'm at Xavier Ramey, um, with the exception of Instagram. That's where I just kind of show my fun side. That's at Professor X. Um, you know, send an email <laughs> over. Check out www.justiceinformed.com. Um, we're trying to change the face of expertise, and we're trying to create a new definition for social impact consulting in the 21st century. Um, and so many things have come together for us and not just us meaning the company, but for us as a people and as a nation to do this specifically right now, um, that I'm just trying to find as many people who want to get in on the game um, and play it differently and reorganize the board for the players who haven't been in on it. Um, 
So I'm excited. I'm excited about everybody that's coming that I don't even know yet, and I'm excited about the people who are already here. Mm-hmm. Oh, that is awesome. I'm going to call you what, Captain Kirk. You know, Star Trek, <laughs> if he didn't, like the, the, he didn't like the rules. <laughs> he didn't like the rules of the game. He just changed the rules. They always win. you got to create an I alternative. Love it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much. All righty. So I want to thank our l- uh-huh. I want to thank our listening audience for listening to today's episode of Nonprofit Utopia. We have just, just heard from Xavier Ramey. Xavier is the CEO and lead strategist for Justice Informed. If you did not get his contact information, you can also, you know, you can always listen to this podcast again, but you can also look on our slideshow. I did leave his contact information in one of the slides. So I am looking forward to joining you and having you join us next week. We will hear from the folks at 92nd Street Y. They're the originators of Giving Tuesday, and Jessica Schneider will be their representative. And Jessica is the Director of Strategy and Collaboration. So if you are in the midst of developing your Giving Tuesday campaign, you won't want to miss next week's episode We're going to be hearing straight from the horse's mouth, for lack of a better word. uh, The 92nd Street Y is the originator of Giving Tuesday. So who best to learn from other than the folks who originate it? So without further ado, it's our time to leave. And again, Xavier, I say thank you very much, and I shall talk to you soon. You take care. All right. Thank you. Bye. Mm -hmm. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.